You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. Have a Nice Day Cafe, Cleveland, Ohio. In downtown Cleveland, there's a nightlife district called The Flats. Bars line both sides of the river, and every summer, some kid would drown attempting to swim from a tavern on the east bank to one on the west bank. The river is narrow here, only about 150 feet across, so it seems like an easy swim. Drunks dive in regularly, and some even make it to the other side, only to discover it's a shipping lane with huge metal banks that they can't climb out of. As a young man, this taught me an important lesson. Drunkenly diving into a river is a lot like declaring war. You must have an exit strategy. I have swum in many different bodies of water. Oceans, bays, rivers... A cove or two, all drunk. Once, I even broke into a hotel by swimming under a gate. Each time, I made sure to identify my eventual exit points before entering the water. Back when I was drinking real hard, I would catch myself locating each exit inside land-based bars before I ordered my first drink, just in case. Drinking is a bit like being a very poorly trained Jason Bourne. You might need to leave suddenly, and you may not know exactly who you are. So it's good to have your escape routes planned in advance. Each time a young person drowned in the flats, the Cleveland media would hyperventilate and wonder, does the flats need to be fixed? Is this too dangerous a landscape for bars? As though the notion of drinking by water was introduced by Cleveland just a year or two before email was invented. Humans have been drinking near water since Mesopotamia. In the ancient world, people were simultaneously so drunk and betrothed to the sea, it was generally assumed at some point you'd probably wind up inside the belly of a whale for a few months. It was as common, back then, to wake up from a bender inside a whale's gastric tract as it is for us to come to on a plane to Vegas. That's rock-hard history. Only in modern America... Would a town, upon learning of a drunk's death by drowning, debate relocating its entire nightlife district rather than admit drunk people are idiots who sometimes accidentally kill themselves? Plus, moving bars inland will not save any lives. Any drownings you prevent will be offset by all the drunks now trying to cross electrified train tracks or falling off statues they've climbed. Believe me. 
and I always wished I could testify before city councils as an expert witness in order to say as much. The kind of guy who wants to swim across the Cuyahoga River is going to find a way to kill himself in any landscape. A councilwoman then asks a follow-up question. Can you provide an example of what you're talking about, Mr. Flannery? Sure. Just as a for instance, your proposed new location is next to a historic cemetery. That's easily five impalings a year from drunks trying to scale the fence. And you're not too far from the zoo. Never underestimate a drunk's desire to do foot races, particularly against animals. I began drinking in the flats in the 1990s, and I assumed this is how it always was. Littered with bars on each side, and the occasional river-slash-beer-related death every five to ten years. It was only after I left Cleveland, years later, that I learned that period was an anomaly, and that, prior to the 1980s, drownings were almost non-existent, and dropped off again after 2001. Cleveland officials are not sure why the numbers were so high during the period I was there, but... To me, it's obvious. First, no one would have attempted to swim across that river prior to 1980. In 1880, the mayor of Cleveland, Rincesalier R. Herrick, called the river an open sewer through the center of our city. And it didn't get any cleaner during the next century. It smelled terrible when I was growing up. And when people asked what Cuyahoga meant, I always joked, it's an ancient Native American phrase that translates to river of manure. It caught fire at least 13 times, the worst infernos being in the 1950s and 1960s, making Cleveland a national joke, but probably saving the lives of a few shit-faced iron workers who would have otherwise tried to doggy paddle home. A drunk believes he can swim across any body of water if he sees a bar on the other end of it. But, light the river on fire, and he starts having second thoughts. He wonders, even if I make it to the other side of this burning river, what if my wallet catches on fire and I I can't buy a beer? Drunks started drowning in the Cuyahoga River in the 1980s because it was finally clear enough to jump into. This is the dark side of the Clean Water Act of 1972. Yes, it saved whole ecosystems and it sanitized our drinking water. But it also decontaminated city waterways enough to cause a huge spike in moron drownings. But the morons did stop drowning, at least in Cleveland in 2002. Cleveland officials are not exactly sure why there are less drownings in the flats, but they believe it is due to more police on patrol, better management of bars, and, again, I want to testify before city council as an expert on drunks to tell them the real reason, which is cell phones. Drunk people today want to swim across rivers just as much as they did in 1997. They just don't want to have to return for their phone. Over the last decade, smartphones have probably saved more drunks from drowning than life preservers. I despise smartphones. 
I hate them more than Republicans hated the Clean Water Act. But I do concede that this infernal device has at least one advantage. Fewer drunks are drowning in industrial waterways. People I'd like to have a drink with. The guy who drunkenly swam the Detroit River. In most disciplines, the more clever and well-crafted an idea is, the more fame it receives. Drinking stories are the opposite. Their fame is proportional to how stupid the idea is. Make a smart choice drinking, and you land safely at home and no one hears a word of it. Make a dumb choice drinking, and you land in jail and the whole neighborhood hears of it. Make a wildly dumb choice drinking, and you land in global news and the entire English-speaking world knows your name, like John Murillo of Windsor, Canada. After a night of drinking, John Murillo, 47, swam across the Detroit River from Canada to America, prompting, according to Fox News, an international rescue operation. Murillo unraveled the story to a reporter from the Windsor Star the next day. I was drinking, but I wasn't really drunk. The thing is, I've been telling people I'm going to swim across the river for years. And they're like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, you can't make it. So, I, I don't know, last night, I just decided it was time to go. If I'm going to be in the paper, I'd at least like them to say, I actually made it. Even though I got in trouble and everything, I got to pay fines and stuff. But I don't want to sound like I didn't make it. Because then my buddies are going to say, ha ha, you didn't make it. Because that was the whole thing, to show him I could do it. Murillo's claim that he was not drunk is amazing. First of all, he jumped into the Detroit River. I have lived in Chicago and Cleveland, industrial cities that are bisected by a river, and I have seen people jump into them, but never sober. If you were to go up to a sober person in these cities and ask, how much for you to jump into the river? They would answer, $20,000. It would set you back half a decade financially to get a sober person to jump into the Chicago River. But a drunk person? They jump in like they're escaping a fire. Secondly, and this is a tell that all drunks should drop when defending themselves, never unsolicitedly add that you were not drunk. Only drunks add, with no prompt, that they are sober. If you pick up a child from daycare and the staff struggles to find the kid, they would never add, we are not drunk, because you would call the police due to how suspicious it sounds. When I got to the Renaissance Center, Murillo continued to the Windsor Star, explaining how we emerged on the American side. I couldn't find a way to get up onto the platform. Then some guy said, hey, there's a ladder over here. I climbed up the ladder. Then people were asking to take pictures with me. There was one woman. She said she was from Windsor and thought I was crazy. She was right. While posing for pictures on the American side, a helicopter began circling above, and Murillo, assuming it was looking for him, jumped back into the river to swim home. Murillo explains, On the way back, I kept diving underwater when the helicopters went over. I was trying to hide. 
But finally, I got almost to the shore, and the spotlight from the helicopter was right on me. And I said, oh, that's it. For those people drinking at the Renaissance Center, talk about a man of mystery. A guy yells, hey, how do I get out of this river? From below, the Detroit fucking river, by the way, and you help steer him to a ladder, and he ascends and takes a few photos and makes small chat, but then when a helicopter arrives, he announces, well, I should leave, and dives back into the river, swimming to Canada. You have an answer the rest of your life when asked, who's the strangest person you've ever met at a bar? Easy, you will answer. The guy we fished out of the Detroit River that an international task force was searching for. Marilla was charged with being intoxicated in a public place and was immediately barred from any city property along the waterfront. But that was only the beginning. As the Windsor Star told it, the harbor master told Marillo he'll likely be fined for swimming in a shipping channel, which could run anywhere from $5,000 to $25,000. Authorities also stressed that swimming in the Detroit River is extremely dangerous because of the strong undertow in the shipping channel. It is also prohibited under Port Authority operation regulations. Harbor master Pete Barry, with the Windsor Port Authority, couldn't be reached for comment, but Marillo said, that harbor master was extremely mad at me. I don't know. Maybe they pulled him out of bed or something. Imagine how interesting it will be for future employers to interview Marillo. Have you ever been convicted of a crime, John? Yes. Swimming in an international shipping lane. I would hire him on the spot. Though maybe that's one of the reasons why I don't run a business. But... Assuming your office isn't along the waterfront, in which case he legally can't enter the building, Marillo is the perfect addition to a small team. He's determined, he's a risk-taker, fun, great energy, and, as we learned when he reached the Renaissance Center, he collaborates well with others. And, perhaps most importantly, he understands that in both business and drunk swimming, the most important question you will answer is, what's my exit strategy? All quotes from Trevor Wilhelm's reporting, Windsor Star, July 23, 2013. Some AP summaries from Fox News, July 24, 2013. On this particular night, I was drinking in the flats along the river, but it was winter. Way too late in the year for drunk swimmers. But this is still a story about exit strategies. We were leaving some nameless bar, heading to a place called Have a Nice Day Cafe. I had no business continuing to the next bar. I was owl-eyed drunk. I started drinking about seven hours previously, when my buddy, a successful accountant, Asked if I wanted to meet them and their co-workers for happy hour. Happy hour, they pointed out, was on the company's dime. You will drink for free. I had plans for later in the evening that I did not want to miss. But I thought, how drunk can I get with accountants? What a miscalculation. 
Accountants drink like high-beam steelworkers that just saw a co-worker die. They're the only people I have met who drink like they want a blackout that moves in two directions. One that eliminates both past and future memories. The first two accountants I met at happy hour were drinking in Cleveland because they were stuck here after drunkenly boarding the wrong plane in Houston and flying halfway across the world in the wrong direction. I was pretty fucking sure this ain't Spokane, one of them explained, when there was no mountains on arrival. They both laughed uproariously and shot tequila. I joined them. After another hour or three of drinking, we were best friends, and we all insisted none of us move to another bar without the others. I'm meeting friends at Have a Nice Day Cafe, I said, sharing my own plans. Well, we're with you. The Texans pledged, perfect, follow me, I announced, and after closing the tabs, we all left together. As we moved past the first set of heavy doors in the bar's vestibule, before we got to the main exit doors and hit the real weather, I turned to the Texans and cautioned them. This is going to nip a bit more than home. It was five degrees outside. I later learned that Houston's coldest recorded temperature from January of 1930 was five degrees. Meaning, these drunk accountants who walked five blocks with us to have a nice day cafe are probably the only Houstonians alive who can describe what it felt like on Houston's coldest night. A sensation they learned, bar hopping in Cleveland. We reached the bar and there was a huge line to enter. My buddy, who had invited me to happy hour, turned and asked, What do you think? This could be a problem for Space City, I say, pointing to the Houston people only to see they have left us and are now talking to the bouncer. They waved us forward, and we got right in. What happened? We asked. I paid the guy 200 to have us jump to the front of the line. I'm not waiting in that cold. My buddy and I laughed so hard that, for a moment, it was louder than the DJ. We're in Cleveland, you idiot, my buddy yelled back. You could have brought us to the front of the line with a 20. I had to get my car out of a toll lot yesterday, and it cost less than getting into this bar. I added, laughing, let me at least buy you all a round of beers after spending that to get us inside. I walked to the bar and noticed my other friends, the ones I had planned to meet here, already at the bar, ordering drinks. Hey, they yelled, noticing me too. You made it, of course. Let's do shots, one yelled. Ah, I hesitated. I don't think I can do shots. I'm pretty far in the bag. Come on! They screamed back, and that whine white men use when disappointed at a bar. I used to think men whine when you refuse shots because they felt you were boring, that you were not participating in the group outing. But, as I've spent more time in bars, I've concluded that dudes are pushy about joining them for shots because that's the only way they know how to express friendship. It's not that you're being boring. It's that you've taken away their only method for affirming emotional importance. This is also why men tell their friends when they are super drunk, you know I'd take a bullet for you, right? Men are so afraid to affirm each other that rather than say, I enjoy hanging out with you because you're a nice dude, it's easier to imagine the guy's attempted murder and you blocking it with your own chest to take that bullet and sharing that death fantasy 
is a less weird way to announce we are friends. Come on, Flannery. I'd take a bullet for you. I know you would, but I'd rather you take a shot for me. Come on. Okay, all right. But I bargained. It has to be an easy shot. They ordered shots. We all put them down the hatch, and they started laughing uproariously. It was Bacardi 151. I was going to vomit. I turned from the bar and started running. I had to vomit. Always a river man, I knew my exit strategy. The bathrooms were too far away. I sprinted to the main doors, where we had entered not five minutes ago. The doors were heavy, so I braced to open them, shoulder first, running at top speed. But security had already noticed me and opened the doors for me. Happy to see me leave, I assume. So all that energy I was going to use to bust open the doors propelled me headfirst through the doorway. I flew out into the Cleveland night. I'm not going to claim that the distance I traveled is greater than what you see in Olympic long jumps. But what I will say is, if you told Olympic long jumpers to leap into concrete, I'm not sure they would have reached my distance. I crashed headfirst into a giant concrete block on the opposite end of the sidewalk. I hit it like a bird that didn't see a window. My body crumpled to the sidewalk where I vomited. The concrete I flew into was part of a new beautification project where potted trees and flowers were destined to one day live. But at that current moment, it was barren and unfinished. There was a sign on it, just above the spot where I was presently, quietly, vomiting and bleeding. It read, Your tax dollars at work. Coming soon, a new Cleveland. There was still a huge line to enter the bar, and in what was a great summary of how alcohol works, not a single person got out of line after witnessing me crash into concrete and crack my head open. People were waiting in freezing cold weather, wondering if this place would be worth the wait, if they would meet the right people there, and then saw a guy shoot out of the bar like he was ejected from a cannon straight into a rock wall and said to themselves, yes, this looks like exactly the right place. That was my last memory. Being surprised, no one left the line. Then things got dark. I woke up on the floor of a kitchen. There were a couple pots around me and this weird, ash-like substance. I stood and recognized the apartment. It was my buddies, the one who invited me to drink with the accountants the day before. I didn't hear anyone stirring. It was early, and I needed to leave. I debated about knocking on the bedroom door to announce I was leaving, but it occurred to me I was probably a very high-maintenance house guest the previous night. Better to let my host sleep in, I thought and I left a note instead. I went into the bathroom to look myself over before leaving. I had a huge black and purple welt on my forehead with dried blood all around it. But at least my suit looked mostly free of both wrinkles and blood. Thank God, I sighed. I'm late for a job interview. I stopped at a pharmacy and covered the worst of my wound in giant bandages, then arrived at the office location about 10 seconds before the interview was scheduled to begin. The first five people who met me at the company said, Jesus, are you sure you're okay? And 
do you want to reschedule this? Which is not what you want to hear as the first words of an interview. I was pessimistic about getting this job back when I was planning to interview without a massive head wound. So at this point, it felt like both parties were only going through the motions. So I started providing each group with a separate explanation for the cut on my forehead, just to crack myself up. I told the secretary I was in a car crash. The recruiter heard I hit my head on a low ceiling helping a friend move. And the network administrator was told about how I was fixing a computer and I forgot to disconnect the power supply, shocking me, which in turn bolted me upright, causing me to smack my head on the desk, which actually did happen to me once. But by the end of the interview, I was so convinced I wouldn't get the job, I told the new business director that a bird dropped a rock on me during a nature walk. He found this story spurious. But I told him it was more common than people believed, and that even Plato had died that way. Are you serious? He asked. Plato. Yeah. I mean, I'm a philosophy major, I explained. It's one of the first things you're taught. Wow. I never knew that. Now, I should make it clear. Plato did not die that way. But... This was before Google and smartphones, and it was much easier to be a liar back then, particularly about the ancient world. People were swallowed by whales back then. Who wouldn't believe that a bird killed a person or two? Particularly some philosopher that seemed to spend most of his life outdoors. I got that job. The note I left for my buddy back at the apartment where I had woke on the kitchen floor said, Thanks for hosting me. Sorry I got so drunk. Hope I didn't ruin your evening. Would thank you in person, but I have to run. Late for a job interview. Wish me luck. The company that hired me closed three days after I started work. That did not flabbergast me. A company eager to hire a guy who was bleeding from the head in his job interview might have additional strategic problems. You're really calm about this. One of the other new hires said to me, after noticing me simply shrug my shoulders and begin walking to the door after hearing the news. Gotta have exit strategies in this town, I answered as I walked out. 